Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. Last week, Friday, January 21st, to be precise, marked the two-year anniversary of the first detected case of the novel coronavirus in the United States. Since then, there have been more than 70 million cases and more than 860,000 deaths due to COVID-19 in the U.S. And while there are many hopeful signs that the Omicron wave that's been pummeling the U.S. for the past month is gradually starting to subside, the seven-day rolling average of new cases is still staggeringly high, and the daily death rate is still inching upwards towards 2,000 a day, right about where it was at the peak of the deadly Delta surge in September. On the very day that we officially embarked on the third year of COVID in America, I sat down for a conversation about the pandemic that has changed the lives of literally everyone on the planet with a guy who knows about as much about the subject as anyone on the planet, former Biden administration senior COVID advisor and the author of Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response, the one and only Andy Slavitt. The state of the pandemic is evolving to the next stage. It's clear COVID isn't going away, but it's also clear we have the tools to live with it and that science can beat it. So while we don't know what to expect necessarily each month, over time we now will have a smoother road because the tools we have will let us get there. Andy Slavitt first came into the public consciousness and the public sector after a 20-year career as a private sector dynamo with an undergraduate degree from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, an MBA from Harvard Business School, stints as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, a consultant at McKinsey, founder and CEO of a digital healthcare startup, and then a top executive at the insurance and managed care multinational United Health Group. But in the fall of 2013, amid a plague of technical snafus that had turned the launch of healthcare.gov, the website set up to run the Affordable Care Act's online insurance marketplace into an utter fiasco, the White House outsourced the turnaround effort to Slavitt's team, and voila. By the spring of 2014, healthcare.gov was cooking with gas and Slavitt was on the cover of Time magazine, being hailed for saving Obamacare and, by extension, the Obama presidency. A few months later, Slavitt left his high-paid health industry gig and came to Washington full-time, signing on as the deputy administrator of one of the most vital and widely relied upon agencies in the entire federal government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. A year after that, he took over running the place. When Obama's term ended, Slavitt left government and took up the cause of defending the ACA from Republican efforts to overturn it, founding the nonprofit United States of Care, along with a VC firm, Town Hall Ventures, that invests in healthcare innovations targeted at helping vulnerable communities, both of which were keeping him plenty busy until COVID-19 hit. Slavitt was early, very early, in forecasting the speed and scale of the onrushing pandemic calling out the Trump administration for being both asleep at the switch and full of shit in February of 2020 and writing an open letter to the country's governors warning presciently of the potential for devastating shortfalls in hospital beds and ventilators. After the country went into lockdown, Slava became an open source bipartisan COVID consultant advising both the Trump White House, although his counsel was mostly ignored, and the Biden campaign, developing a sophisticated contact tracing plan widely praised by public health experts but ignored by those in power, and launching a pandemic-focused podcast in the bubble with Andy Slavitt, which he continues to host today, and the tone of which he intended to be 50% Winston Churchill, 50% Fred Rogers. 
After Joe Biden's victory in November 2020, it was all but inevitable that Slavitt would be called upon to go back inside the government and help lead the effort to tackle COVID. And he was, and he did, serving as the top lieutenant to COVID czar Jeff Zients for the first 130 days of the new administration. Now, nearly a year later, with Slavitt back in the private sector, but still in the thick of the fight against COVID, we thought this would be the perfect time to hear his thoughts about the past, present, and future of the pandemic, about what the Biden administration has gotten right in its efforts to tackle the virus, in particular, its aggressive rollout of vaccines, and where it's fallen short on testing, masks, being prepared for severe new variants like Delta and Omicron, and even having misjudged its messaging about the real value of vaccination, about how much the administration has been hampered in its efforts by the lingering legacy of the Trump administration's countless epic fails, along with the anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, and anti-science conspiracy theorizers on the right, and what slab it makes of the arguments of even many Biden-aligned doctors that COVID is on the cusp of shifting from pandemic to endemic, that the worst is over, or nearly over, that we're finally about to get back to normal, or at least to a new normal, an era when maybe, just maybe, when it comes to the health of our nation and our world, we'll be blessedly dealing with a little bit less hell and high water. I know there's a lot of frustration and fatigue in this country, and we know why. COVID-19, Omicron has, has, has now been challenging us in a way that uh, it's the new enemy. But while it's caused for concern, it's not cause for panic. The bottom line on COVID-19 is that we're in a better place than we've been and have been thus far, clearly better than a year ago. We're not going to back, we're not going back to lockdowns. We're not going back to closing schools. Some people may call what's happening now the new normal. I call it a job not yet finished. It will get better. We're moving toward a time when COVID-19 won't disrupt our daily lives. Where COVID-19 won't be a crisis, but something to protect against and a threat. Look, we're not there yet, but we will get there. That's the kind of can-do spirit that one expects from American President Andy. I ask you, and I, I find it hard to believe you're going to say, man, Joe Biden's full of shit. But how do you think he did in characterizing the state of the pandemic to the country at that press conference? But you can almost hear him struggle with this thing that I think a lot of us are feeling, which is the need to be optimistic because God living without optimism and hope is is rough, while also giving an accurate portrayal of what people are, are feeling and experience. And look, I mean, he's nothing if not empathetic. And I think he's at his best when he just kind of speaks from the heart. Now, people sometimes cringe and say, well, this is when he makes mistakes or when he says something that's not necessarily you know well-designed to get whatever political message he's supposed to deliver delivers. But I think that that press conference as a whole, while there were some, in other areas, some things that people were critical of, when it came to COVID, I thought he did a really nice job of trying to capture what people felt, you know, create a sense of hope and not sound frustrated because I think in the in his position, you know, where you feel like you've done so many things, but you know the American public isn't feeling it, it's really easy to sound defensive. And and, right. he, and I think he didn't. I think he sounded like he was putting himself kind of squarely in the minds and eyes of kind of working people. I think all that's right. And I'm, I'm going to ask you in a second just to kind of evaluate the state of the Omicron. Omicron? Do you say Omicron or do you say Omicron? What do you say? I say Omicron. 
Okay, we'll say Omicron. I get shit no matter what I say on television. Yeah. Everybody says I'm wrong no matter which way I go. You know, I'll ask you to evaluate the state of the Omicron wave in a second. But there's this other thing that I think that you're pointing to, right, which is the emotional kind of contours of it. And the one thing I think if you were going to criticize Biden for anything, and certainly is what Republicans are criticizing him for, and, and we'll talk about that a little later, but it is a kind of excessive brio in the 2020-21 period, you know, of kind of like, we will defeat this thing. I will not rest until it's just beaten into submission and we will conquer it and it will be gone. It will be dead and buried. It's like Monty Python, you know, like it, it breathes no more. This is a dead virus. And this was more like, no one believes that anymore. There's no appetite for that. It's no longer like, Blue states are pro-science and we're going to get through this and red states are anti-science, but we're going to get there. It's not a problem in the first place. Now it's like everyone's just sort of like, man, this is like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. it's not going away and it's never going to really go away. And we're kind of adjusting ourselves to that. And Biden felt like he was in tune with that kind of emotional tenor more than at some points that he has been over the course of the last year. Well, look, there's nobody humbler than people who thought they could predict the course of the virus. And in retrospect, there are a couple places that if you had the full benefit of hindsight, you'd say, well, gee, when the vaccines came out and we said they were 95% effective against infection, we probably would have said, hey, slow down. That doesn't matter. What matters is protecting people from hospitalizations and death and you know the infection thing. Right. And we got really hooked on that. And then I think people got that into their heads. And so everything else that happened next, when you saw Delta and you saw the waning of immunity, which were all things, we, you know, one could argue that would, were hard to anticipate, but not impossible. You would have looked back and said, gee, if the virus changes, that may change the effectiveness of the vaccine. Right. Very hard to deliver that message at that time. No one did. And then, of course, Omicron came and made the vaccines behave even differently. So now when people say, hey, guess what? These vaccines are great because they save our lives. And if you don't yeah. take the vaccine, you're at risk. You know, it, it, people are a little bit more suspect or maybe a lot more suspect lot more, because yeah. it's a very different message. And it feels like it's consistent with like everything else, like masks and everything else. Right. And so the sense that we all had and we all had it in early 2021, the spring of 2020, which is, hey, we did what we said we were going to do. Science helped us. We are now in the place we've been waiting for. And we thought we were tired then. Right. Back then right. we thought <laughs> we were exhausted with this. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. we were like, hey, everybody felt worldwide, not just in the U.S., that we were in a different place. Coming back from that, right, coming back from a place where you said, hey, this thing is over, is a really hard message to deliver because people just don't want to hear it. Right. It's like, you know, we had that moment where it was like hot back summer is coming. It's going to be great. We're all going to be back in the bars. It's all going to be fantastic. I remember I went to a movie like July 1st, it was the first movie I'd gone to since March of 2020. And then Delta slammed in the next week. And it was like, well, OK, then you feel like you've been punched in the face twice after having kind of really stuck your chin out and said, I did what I was supposed to do. I got my vaccine. And now it's like it's like polio. It's going to be banished. And I'm, I did what I was supposed to do. Everything's going to be fine. And then, you know, like I say, you got punched in the face twice now. And, and people have been punched in the face twice you know, are like, OK, don't tell me that I'm never going to get punched in the face again. I'm expecting yeah. it. Yeah. There's these weird specialties, John, like there are pandemic sociologists, yeah, like people yeah. who, right. And like, and I've met a bunch of them, maybe you have as well. But like, one of the things that they told me was, it's like, people believe they deserve in their hearts and heads, they believe they deserve things being a certain way, i.e. the way they were in 2019. Yeah. So if things aren't yeah. that way, they feel like they're 
owed some deficit by somebody. They're not necessarily sure who. Maybe it's the government. Yeah. Maybe it's science. Maybe it's Mother Nature. I mean, who knows? But they're they're pissed. And the reality is, we're not owed a reality that looks like 2019. We're just not. I mean, this is a nature versus human thing. Totally. And there's no storybook ending to right. it necessarily. Right. And so we're living in the state where we're like, hey. This is BS because we're not experiencing the kinds of things, the ways we experienced them before. And so we are angry about it. And the reality is we can be angry. We can be upset. We can be mad. We can be depressed. Although I hope we get out of those states and just face up to the fact that, look, we're battling something that is a dead set of fatty cells. Yes. That's what it is. And it shapeshifts and it evolves and it's smart. And we have tools on our side to fight right. it. But it's like we're in the middle of a war and we're saying, hey, how come we haven't won yet? Right. I keep thinking in my mind that somehow because the government has such a large role in this, right, that people have, to, the, to your point, it's both a sociological thing and a psychological thing. The government has this big role and the way that government is constructed in people's minds is largely like some kind of a social contract. It's like, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I will get the following thing. To your point about expectations, it's like, if I don't go over the speed limit, I won't get a ticket. If I pay my taxes, I won't get taken to, to jail by the IRS or fined by the IRS. But, it, you know, in, in everything medical, we have a certain thing of like, if you live right, you're less likely to get sick. But no one thinks they're like owed. Like if I have a good diet, I'm definitely owed a cancer free existence. And so when you get cancer, people get angry about getting cancer. They blame God. They blame fate. They blame whatever. But it's not quite the same as the thing you're talking about here, where it's sort of like the government told me to do this thing. I did this thing. Now I'm owed the following, which is it's the logic of the social compact, which doesn't really as cancer shows and everything else shows it doesn't obtain right. in the medical biological sphere. That's just not how it works, dude. You can do things to mitigate risk. You can do things to improve your prospects, but you can't do something to guarantee yourself anything. Well, you know, it's interesting because we've had a really remarkable run that we've probably been less appreciative than we should necessarily probably be in retrospect, where if you know, if you it's it's old, if you work hard, you play by the rules, you know, life gets better for the next generation and things tend to work out. Right. And there were some underpinnings there that we didn't question. One of them was, hey, we got a stable planet, right? That's going to be here for us. We've got a stable democracy that whether our team wins or loses, at least it's here and we'll have another shot at it. And we may not like the policies of the moment, but things are generally on the path to getting better. And the other is that, you know, we can exist with nature and whether it's pandemics or whether it's, uh, you know, the biodiversity crisis, whatever it is, those are all underlying assumptions because, you know, roughly speaking in the 80 odd years we're alive, those things are unlikely to change. Well, you know what? Correct. All those things feel wobbly now. And those things feeling wobbly make us all go through, I don't know whether it's the seven stages or 500 stages or, but you know, every emotion you write known to man. And my advice for, you know, political leaders is, you know, no one promised you that managing through a pandemic is going to make you popular. It's just a hard thing to do. And, right. and, you know, you do it and you're going to get criticized because people are going to be unhappy. Right. But you just have to make the right decisions and explain it to people and talk to people and be candid with people as much as possible. And whether you're a governor, uh, whether you're a leader of a country, public health leader, a political leader, whatever it is, you have to step into that dynamic, understanding that you're touching people in a way that is is existentially different than kind of your normal run-of-the-mill 
life communication. You're not an epidemiologist, but you're very close to this. And you talk to a lot of people who are on the leading edge of the science of all this, right? If we think about Omicron, I, I believe you would say all the following things are true. What we know now is wildly infectious, but relatively mild, you know, that it's going to kill a bunch of people because of the difference disparity between vaccinated and non-vaccinated. It's going to kill a bunch of people, but it's not as deadly as Delta. It could have been a lot worse. The hospitalizations are bad, but not off the charts horrible. And that there's kind of a conventional wisdom now that in places where it's hits hardest, we've kind of peaked and are maybe on the way down and that there's going to be other places where the peak is still off in the future somewhere. Do you think all that's basically kind of accepted now as a, a kind of characterization of Omicron or has I gotten anything wrong there? Well, look, I, I'd, say, I'd say that it is our current knowledge and our current knowledge is always has gaps and it's useful to understand why. I found that like when I leave it at what you just said, it's satisfying to some degree, but not completely. Yep. And so it's more helpful for me to, to understand at, at this level. Omicron infects you in the upper respiratory and in your bronchial tubes, the things that feed into your lungs. Yep. They don't particularly multiply well in your lungs. So that has a lot of implications. You're less likely to get pneumonia. You're less likely to need assisted oxygen. You're less likely to have trouble breathing. What it doesn't say is that it won't travel in your neuropathways into other organ systems necessarily. What we do know is that it unfortunately replicates more quickly than tests can detect it. In other words, you are more likely with Omicron to be infectious before a test will tell you you're infectious. In other words, you're going to have a false negative with any kind of test. Right. And so it makes it harder for it not to spread. So it spreads more yep. and it spreads more within families because of that. It's not necessarily a more infectious virus than Delta, but what it is, is it's mutated enough times so that it can essentially infect you before the immune training that your system has, either from prior infection or from a, a vaccine that's dated. Right. In other words, one you had more than four months ago can yeah. respond. Right. A booster response can stop it. But a combination of the fact that it doesn't love your lungs yeah. and the fact that you have a, a immune response that eventually gets there after a couple days means that you're very unlikely, if you've been vaccinated, like 0.01% to need to be hospitalized from this. And that's a good thing. Right. And what it says about the future and future variants, almost nothing, almost nothing. Is certain yeah, we'll get there. that a little later, but like, okay. let me ask you these couple things. Like, so as I sit here in New York city where we got hit with Omicron really ahead of everyone, and there was panic on the streets in New York city before Christmas. Now there's the sense that the worst is over and that the city's kind of people who are like the recount that plan to come back to work, to have a back into the office in, in early January. We we put it off, but we're coming back now in the first week of February. People are like, okay, we're ready to go. So I get that that's where the Northeast is. Highly vaccinated and got hit early. As you look as a health systems guy, as you look at the rest of the country where it hasn't hit as hard yet and where there's a lot lower vaccination rates, are we looking at like kind of a rolling nightmare over the next X months? What do you foresee just for Omicron over the, the next quarter or six months in the in red America, to, to use a shorthand, unvaccinated America? Hopefully it's weeks, not months. I don't doubt that there will be some places that it'll be longer. But, you know, this thing is so efficient at spreading and there's only so many of us. Right. And there's so many, so many of us that are mingling in public, I should say, that, first of all, it's likely peaked 
nationally. This is one that'll peak before we see it because the testing readouts are a little bit strange. Yeah, It's likely not peaked everywhere, but on an aggregate basis, it's peaked, maybe even peaked a week or two ago. And the test positivity rates, which are, are a really important indicator, are coming down. A real, you asked a fascinating question about and the, the spring and the summer in Red America, because historically, Florida gets its worst in the summer. Arizona and Texas get their worst in the summer, right. which is counterintuitive. And the best explanation is that people have got to go indoors because of air conditioning. And right. of course, nobody wears masks and you got poorly circulated buildings and that's when you get your super spreaders, et cetera. So I don't think we can be dead sure that, that there'll be a quiet summer in every part of the country. But on the other hand, you can feel like with either prior immunity to Omicron or vaccination or both, you got a lot of blanket protection in this country. And so nobody should forecast too aggressively, but you should be able to say that it should get at least all the way to the fall, at least, that we should be back to much, much lower levels and much more normal Beaver, and I'm knocking on my wooden desk. Right. <laughs> yes, I'll knock on mine too. Before I move to a couple quick things on kind of news of day related to policy or news of week related to policy, I want to ask you just one thing about vaccines because you raised this before. We talked about expectations, right? Which was the messaging around, hey, if you get vaccinated, you do what you're supposed to do. You know, your people had this expectation that once they got their shots, that they would be free and clear. Obviously, that's not been the case. And you said very tricky to message that, hey, you should get these. You might still get it, but it will mean you won't get hospitalized and you're less likely to die. Put aside all of that. Is it not the kind of counterintuitive case on the basis of what we know today, not future variants, not anything else, but the basis of what we know today, that these vaccines have been, again, counterintuitively for a lot of people who are frustrated and, right. and disappointed, that the vaccines have been a magnificent success story, like, like astonishingly successful on the basis of anything anybody would have thought in the spring of 2020 when we were first talking about vaccine development to try to fight this thing. Fucking amazing. On so many levels, the speed at which they came to be here, the scalability at which they can be produced. I mean, we put 10 million needles in arms across the world. We vaccinated 60% of the globe. The speed at which we've been able to vaccinate people. Even, I would say, and this may surprise you, the surprising amount of people who've been willing to be vaccinated. A year ago, only about 40% of Americans said that they were sure they were going to get vaccinated. And 85% of adults have had at least one shot. And then the most importantly, the effectiveness of this at triggering your immune system to protect you from something serious happening, which is really the most important thing a vaccine can do for you. A flu vaccine doesn't prevent the flu. A flu vaccine makes it more mild, which in the case of people for whom the flu is deadly, namely people in nursing homes and who are older, that difference is enormous, is enormously important. So yes, I think if you put aside missed expectations, you would say this has had a profound impact on the amount of lives saved. And even to put a number on that, back in the summer, uh, a study at Yale estimated that even the acceleration of vaccines that happened under the Biden administration had saved 250,000 lives. Vaccines themselves have saved, in the U.S. alone, Vaccines have probably saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives more than that since. We're going to talk in a second about your experience working in the administration and over the course of that 130 days you worked there last year in the first bit of the first third or so of Joe Biden's presidency. 
But just in the moment, right, these two big things that the administration is rolling out right now, right? Number one, the website's up now. We bought a billion rapid tests and we're going to give them away, right? And then there's the mask thing. We're rolling out M95 masks, sending them out. I want to just play something. I never like to mock Jen Psaki because she's a friend of mine. I think she does an incredible job. But I want to play this one piece of sound because it goes to something that a lot of people have pointed to. And I think it points to a deeper thing. It's not about making fun of Jed. This is about the administration changing its course really quickly within a couple of weeks. This is from back in December, a little recount mashup here. Why not just make them free and give them out to, and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Two weeks later. So I'm announcing today that federal government will purchase one half billion, that's not million, billion with a B, additional at-home rapid test with delivery starting in January. We'll be getting these tests to Americans for free. And we'll have websites where you can get them delivered to your home. First, I want to just say, look, I mean, you know, I think Jen Psaki is really good at her job and I love I love her personally. She's a great she's a lovely woman and she's fantastic. I've known her for a long time. And I don't want to, you know, pe- people who stand up at that podium and face the press corps day after day, they make mistakes sometimes. And, and this one is not one that I think is is deserving of mockery. But. You know, there's a pretty stark contrast there that we pointed out between just a couple of weeks, two weeks later, uh, between Saki from the podium and then Biden saying what he said and what the government's now doing. Right. You know, there's a larger question about masks and testing that we're going to get to about kind of what the administration should or shouldn't have done over the course of the first year. But, you know, it's really this two week thing to go from. Uh, sort of mocking the idea that the government would ever provide masks directly to saying, you know, let's buy millions of them and send them out for free. You know, the government is is not good at very big and complicated things, as you know, Andy. But look, buying a bunch of N95 masks in bulk and setting up a very basic plan to distribute them and to distribute rapid tests uh, is is something that the government should be pretty good at doing. This is like a basically as simple as sending out checks that Medicare does, uh, something you're also very familiar with. You know, so there are people who are saying, you know, this should have seemed obvious a long time ago. And I don't mean like a year ago, but, you know, the Omicron wave kind of started to hit, you know, in South Africa and, and in Europe, you know, in November, we got the first cases here in the United States in early December. And I guess I'm curious why you think it was that it wasn't sort of obvious, at least around at that point, that there was going to need to be a massive rapid mobilization of this kind on masking and on testing in order to try to get as much ahead of this wave as you could, uh, even if you didn't anticipate it previously. Yeah. So first of all, I, I love Jen Psaki as well. And, you know, there's always going to be something when you're talking to the press that often that, that you regret that, and that it's easy to, to jump on. And, you know, the process of briefing her is an interesting one. I never did her briefings, but the team that briefed me would brief her. And of course, she's getting briefed on 500 topics. And so you're trying to bring her up to speed and everything. And I think the truth is that they were very likely strongly considering, I'd say more than very likely, they were already strongly considering doing that when she made that comment. So some of this is just a matter of she can't be expected to know. And then she probably got a little bit provoked. Yeah. For some reason, that question just rubbed her the wrong way. And so she got a little bit sarcastic, which I'm generally speaking, often regret. So I think that's what happened in that moment. But I would also say something that I think is going to be a little bit controversial, which is that I think we probably are way, 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 way overblown the importance of these rapid at-home tests relative to everything else. Now, it is true that they would have been a very nice convenience to get to people before the Christmas holidays. 
and that if they were abundantly available, people would have had more assurance. But the FDA has been saying for a long time, not in a way that people can hear, normal people, but that, boy, be careful with these at-home tests. They don't give you the assurance you think they need. But people didn't want to hear it because everyone was like, hey, in Europe, you can get as many as you want. And the reality is if you look at the cases in Omicron in Europe and the U.S. to compare them, there was really no difference, no difference in tests made. It made people feel better. So as a policymaker, put aside like how you should be in touch with people's wants and needs and, and they felt like it's something they wanted and needed. As a policymaker, you sit back and go, boy, vaccines and boosters, if they're a 10 on importance and antivirals are an, a nine and masks are an eight, tests are like a four or five. And so they may have missed the fact that there was a big outcry for these things. And they may have missed it, in fact, because the scientists like Fauci and others were saying, hey, these things are not always great. They missed that moment. And then they were like, I'm sure they were like, well, forget it. Let's just send everyone tests. We're getting killed on this. So to some extent, I think there's a combination of the fact that they were probably always considering it and Jen may not have known it. And the fact that they got pulled to do something and make it more important because people thought it was important as opposed to it became important because it was the key thing we needed to do to stop the pandemic. There are two things. One, buying masks in bulk, sending them out, buying tests in bulk, making them accessible to people for free. A, do you think that we're in the right place now on that? Like that those are good and persistent policies are going to go forward. And then I think the other question, and I think it, it goes into this thing of this moment of like the CDC guidance getting changed on on Omicron. It goes to the thing we've been talking about from the very start here, which is just people's sort of sense of like, do these guys have their shit together? When things are changing a lot, it's like right. one minute is, oh, we're not going to send you masks. Now we're going to send you masks. Now we're going to not send you tests. Now you got to send tests. We did enough. We haven't done enough. Oh, well, it's five days. It's seven days. It's 10 days. It just makes everybody kind of go after again, given their state of the, the macro thing, which is like, I got vaccinated and I'm still got COVID now. Right. There's all of the kind of chewing and froing, not undermine credibility yeah. and make people just go, Jesus, man, these guys do not have their shit together. Why should I believe what they tell me at this point? Even when they're doing the right thing. Exactly. And they've reversed course to do the right thing. It's like, you know, a lot of changes, not consistency. Right. When we came in in January, there was a plan. There was literally a physical plan that was 100, 200 pages that literally said there's seven priorities. Here's what we need to do. We need to execute against all of them. Their boosters, their schools, their uh, whatever there. And, and whether or not they hit everything in the plan, precisely right, is that my point? My point was, I think the country could feel a comprehensive approach. Yes. And this thing was a Bible. And we kept referring back to it. And it felt comprehensive. Yes. So even while things were going badly, you knew someone was watching the story and thinking about it holistically. I think what I would probably say the thing that's missing is that now all of the things that are happening feel like they're one-off and and maybe responsive as opposed to was it something they were planning on doing. And if you had taken all of these things they're doing and called it something and said, hey, we have a plan, which is the tools for the next phase of the pandemic. Right. You recall that I said the state of the pandemic is we're now moving into a tools phase. Right. Have a headline. The headline is we're moving to this new phase. We are putting together a set of comprehensive resources all available in one place for you to have, whether it's, it's information on how your community is doing on your schools. It's information on masks. It's how to get a mask sent to you. It's where to find a mask. It's how to get an at-home test. It's where to get rapid tests. It's, and this is the set of resources that's going to keep you and your family safe in the next phase and had it laid out as a plan and referred back to it because 
there is a ton of stuff that they're doing now, a ton of stuff on antivirals, on preparing more variant-specific vaccines. Yep. It's all going on. No one knows about it. No one's focusing on it. And they're not going to get any credit for it. And right. when, when they need it, when they pull it out, again, it will look, I mean, they may not get as much credit as they deserve for anticipating these things. And you have to play six months ahead because when you're in January and you focus on solutions in January, it's almost no good. So my guess is by the time you get to March, April, May, there will be something that sounds more comprehensive sounding. I don't think they want to roll out a plan right. in the middle of the wave. Right. I think they will say, here's what the rest of the year will look like. Here's a comprehensive set of things. Here's how, what we're doing to anticipate things. And I think people will start to feel better. It's almost a universal truth that you never feel good when the epidemiological curve is going up right. and you always feel too good when the curve is coming <laughs> yeah, down. Right. It's like the stock market. The stock market's going up. The psychology is everything feels wonderful. Yeah. So there's almost no winning politically as long as cases are growing because by definition, you failed because you're to blame. And when they're going down, you get a little bit of the reverse benefit. You get a little bit of, well, things are better. They must have thought things through and whatever. And neither one is, is actually right. This is a good place for us to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Andy Slavitt on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water with my guest, Andy Slavitt. Let's flash back to the start of the pandemic. I want to play a little recount supercut of COVID news coverage from January 2020, really early days. And then we will follow up that with some sound from an appearance that, Andy, you made on Hardball with Chris Matthews in February of 2020, where you rang the alarm bell on COVID. So first, here's how the American news media was covering COVID in January 2020. So they're calling this the coronavirus. Should we be concerned that it could spread to the U.S.? Not a big concern at this point. Are hospital staff and other patients at risk of exposure? Not for this particular case. Hospitals in the U.S. have gotten much, much better about being prepared for novel infections. The fact is it's not spreading in this country. They do not believe that there is an immediate risk to the broader American public. They don't rec make recommendations that people here wear face masks. The risk for the general communities in the United States from this infection is very low. So now let's hear what Andy Slavitt had to say about COVID just a month later in February 2020. We have two problems. One is a problem of credibility and one is a, is a pr problem of competence. Trump has dismantled the chain of command with regard to responding to global pandemics. He's defunded the CDC. And so there's an air of improvisation going on. And I think if people wonder, is there a cost is there a credibility cost to a president who doesn't always tell the truth? Um, it really comes into play now. You know, you had a long career in the private sector. You did the work you did in the Obama administration on and trying to help rehabilitate the Affordable Care Act website and had your government service period. And then, you know, you're now sitting outside government again, presumably assuming you're never going to go back in government, I believe. Like when this all happened in January, February, March, did it strike you as the media largely was like, eh, it's going to be fine? You know, by February, it was starting to change, to be fair. But you're already like clearly alarmed enough by February 25th that you're like, this is bad and Trump's a problem. So I'm just want to get back to your headspace about what you thought back in that February, March 2020, like what yeah. was about to unfold and how bad it might be and how bad Trump might handle it and where you thought that might take us going forward. Like just a little yeah. flashback to your mindset. OK. <laughs> So that Chris Matthews spot was like at 1054. It was like a whole hour on like 
Bloomberg was Bloomberg sexually harassing people at right. his office. And, and then there was a little bit of, hey, you know, what, what's going on here? And what we know now is that the president, we know from the Woodward book, that the president knew in January that this was going to be really, really bad. And, and we know from other reporting in my book, actually, I captured some conversations where Alex Azar called the president and said, you know, look, this is what's going on. And in part, you know, the president, I, I think probably of all the things he did that I think is most regrettable, President Trump, was he basically denied for as long a time as possible until such time as his hand was forced because the stock market was dropping because the NBA season ended early. That was when he was forced to acknowledge that something was going on here. But in the meantime, people were putting themselves at risk every day and many of those people ended up dying because he didn't warn them. And we all had our oh shit moments, right? I had my oh shit moment when I, it was someone from some governor's office sent me some estimate of what would happen in their hospitals if cases even began to look remotely like they were looking in Italy. And there were two curves, if you recall at the time. We had Italy and South Korea. Yeah. And South Korea was going flat and Italy was going up. And I had called about seven or eight different scientists and said, well, what do we need to do to be on South Korea's curve instead of Italy's curve? And they all said the same thing. It's too late. We're already on Italy's curve. And I said, well, how could that be? Well, they explained to me, this is my first lesson, in how what you're seeing is really a window, a picture of two weeks behind. If you look at the window, you're seeing two weeks ahead of what any data is telling you right. and that hospitalizations follow that, et cetera, et cetera. And so that realization that what we were seeing happen in Italy was about to happen here hit me at some point in February, late February. And what I was commenting there specifically on was that the president had those facts available to him. Right. And the president actually not only had the facts available to him, he knew those things for certain. Right. And he was lying and denying. And that also meant that his staff couldn't mobilize. Right. It is impossible when you have a president saying, this is not happening, to call all the labs in the country and say, hey, start producing tests and to mobilize the country. So we were sitting on this information which was really time critical and it was preventing action. And because it grows exponentially, it wasn't like a day costs you a day. It was like a day costs you a week. Right. I've heard you, you've given Trump credit for Operation Warp Speed. So that's something you're on the record saying that Warp Speed is good. We talked about how effective the vaccines have been. Not that you know Trump developed the mRNA vaccine technology, but you know, the, you've given him credit for Warp Speed. You haven't given him the credit for Warp Speed that you have given him. Is there any analysis of the way that the pandemic was handled in 2020. And then we're going to ask about 2021 and Joe Biden and you guys. But is there any other way to describe it other than catastrophic? Like, is catastrophic the right word or is that overstated or is that understated? You had to look as you came into office. Biden came into office. You came into office. You could see. Yeah. You could measure very accurately in a way a lot of us couldn't really accurately how much damage had been done by choices made and unmade over the course of the previous nine months. Right. Yeah. So with that perspective, like on a scale of one to ten, how bad was Trump's mismanagement and how much steeper did it make the hill that you guys had to climb when you came in in January of 2021? It was it was bad, and I'll tell you why it was bad. It was bad not because the president made honest mistakes trying his best. I think we ought to be fairly charitable, particularly in 2020, 
but also in 2021 with new variants, when you've got political leaders stuck between very hard choices, doing their best, being honest with the public, following the science the best they can. And if they make mistakes, and I think we have probably 46 governors that I put in a category of many of different philosophies, but all were really trying. They were trying to save lives. They were trying to save businesses and plenty of them made mistakes, but I don't, I'm, I'm pretty charitable. And I think we ought to be pretty charitable to people who were like on the firing line, making battlefield calls, even if they were wrong. The difference with Trump were a couple things. One is he just lied and he lied in ways that, that cost lives. Second is he opinion shopped and suppressed science. So he, effectively, when he had people tell him things he didn't like because they didn't like the way they made him look, he got rid of them and replaced them with this complete joke, Scott Atlas. <laughs> and he liked Scott Atlas because his opinion was malleable and because he agreed with him and because he had an MD in front of his name and he had a Stanford at the back of his name. And so that, I think, is unforgivable. And then the third thing that's unforgivable is he played politics. Once he saw that there was a kind of a populist mileage for him, in kind of masks. And he saw this the day after Deborah Burks introduced her report, which said, hey, this is how we're going to go attack this pandemic. We're going to wait till conditions on the ground are sufficient and we're going to do it state by state. Right. That very next day is when he sent out the tweets that said, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, right. because he had kind of these rebels attacking the governor's offices. And those were two states that were in real trouble. Yeah, And so he defied his own scientists because he saw political leverage. Right. Once he saw political leverage in this sort of populist view on masks, et cetera, he made it very hard to cross back over the chasm, right. which we face now and we face as we came into office, that the die was cast because it was a matter of identity. And when I talk to foreign leaders about the challenges they have, like taking something simple like masks, they tell me they're not universally popular. Nobody loves them. Yeah. And people may even argue over how effective they are and which one's more effective, but it's not a matter of which jersey am I wearing. Right. You guys have. Right. Is if you believe one way politically, you have to believe this way about masks. And they're like, I don't know how I would combat that. I talked to a right. foreign health system that I don't know how I would combat that because we're just dealing with it on the merit that it's hard. You're dealing with it on a whole other plane. Yes. And so I think those three mistakes, lying, denying science, and politicizing the pandemic were three things that I don't think should be forgivable. Right. I'm going to ask you in a second, I promise you, I'm going to ask you about the first year of Biden and your time in administration and where you think you actually made mistakes. There's a lot of like retrospective money, money quarterbacking about what you guys did right and what you did wrong. And some of it sounds fair to me. But before I do that, just because it like kind of comes out of the point you were just making, one of the legacies it left that you had to confront that was a complicated factor, which I think is present in other countries. It's not like we're the only country with conspiracy theories. And it's not like we're the only country who spread those conspiracy theories who are in positions of media authority or at least in positions of great reach in media. We're not unique in that regard. But but it is very pervasive here. And because of the red-blue divide that you just pointed to, it's been uniquely difficult as a cultural matter, it seems to me, right? So Again, there are there are things that were totally within the administration's control, which we'll talk about next. But first, just once you came into office and you were working for the 130 days you were, try to just describe the ways in which this vast conservative echo chamber 
casting doubt on vaccines, casting doubt on masks, casting doubt on science, casting doubt on on everything, certainly trying to, to tear down Joe Biden's efforts at every turn. How much of a challenge was that on top of all of the other very large challenges you were going to face, even if that didn't exist? Right. How big a problem do you think that was and how much does it still haunt the administration in the country as it tries to get its arms around this thing as it evolves going forward? Well, it wasn't the biggest problem, but what was annoying about it was it's self-inflicted. Yeah. And, and I actually think it's deeper than the pandemic. And I suspect you do too, John, from just mm. no, no, when you, I, I mean, I think you've got about 15 to 20% of the country that is so anti-expert and, and anti-science, but it comes from a place of being anti-institutionalist, not believing in authority, you know, all, all the things we know that cause people to feel dispossessed who knows what it is but it's probably goes back to the housing crisis and beyond yeah where you have people who just they're just fundamentally not on board with anything the government tells them to do anything scientific establishment tells them to do fda and cdc on their face are not credible and you know i think we knew that but they were one of three groups of people that we knew we would face challenges with in terms of getting vaccinated if that's the measure if that's the single measure the other two were people of color who, owing to Tuskegee and prior history, yep. and also access issues, there was both skepticism and access points. And then the third group, which I think is the most under-talked about, but by far the largest and most important, is young people. Yes. I mean, show me an 85-year-old, and I'll, they're vaccinated. I don't care what their political <laughs> affiliation is, or, or they're dead. <laughs> they're vaccinated. Show me a 25-year-old, it's 50-50 that they're vaccinated. Right. If they're liberal. Yeah. Show me a 12-year-old and they're not vaccinated. Right. And and look, there's a certain comfort in that there's at least some logic to it. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you're 85, you're very much at risk. If you're 25, you're very mildly at risk. And if you're 10, um, you're less, even less at risk. And people don't want to take, you know, what they believe to be actions with their kids, what they're not 100% certain about. And so- when we faced the challenges of vaccinating the country, we viewed it from two standpoints. One was supply, which was not an easy problem. And thankfully, we got our hands around it. The other yeah. was demand, yep. which we spent as much time working on, but it was more in the background. And we worked it in those three groups. And young people were by far the hardest because at some level with conservatives, there were hard no's. And we could work with influencers and people we knew in the conservative community, like some of the evangelical leaders, some very good people who were helpful to us in the community. We were there. We were we were facing, as you say, I mean, misinformation is easy because yeah. it's something new. All you have to do is cast a little bit of a doubt, right? And the doubts travel. So we, I wouldn't say that that wasn't a, a big obsessive thing that I wasn't personally combating and dealing with Facebook on every day. Right, right. But in the scheme of, of everything, we were really focused on the gettable people. And we did a remarkable job with people of color because we closed the equity gap right. sooner than I ever imagined. And I give a lot of people credit for that. Young people remain a challenge. And, you know, the rural, urban, conservative divide is real but it's it's not as real as the age gap is. So I'm listening to Ezra Klein's podcast the other day and, and the woman from the New York Times, this this writer who's now in much in fashion, and I think justifiably so, very smart sociologist, or kind of someone who exists at the kind of intersection of sociology and epidemiology, uh, Zeynep Tufek. 
Chi, she basically did the thing I thought that was smart was basically say, look, you know, let's just focus on as we think about Biden's first year, again, of which you were part of roughly the first third on this front. They faced a lot of challenges that weren't of their own making that they didn't have that much control over. But there were some where they had more control. And you think about you know, the campaign promises, the things the administration said it was going to do. And she kind of rattled off a series of things that I think a lot of people sort of now kind of take as read that these were things where the where administration did not do as well as it could have done. One, on testing. Two, on masking. Three, consistency of message and what is now seen as kind of a crisis of credibility around the CDC. And then fourth, I guess you would say, even though you couldn't have known Omicron specifically was coming, there are an awful lot of people in the epidemiological community who are like, there's something coming after Delta. You guys should start getting ready for that. And that preparation on a broad scale of those of those or other things, if you look back in a fair minded way, not just on your own role, but on the administration over the course of the last year, what would you say history will say, yeah, you know what, you know, these are the places where we have to own some degree of error and where not knowing what we know today, but even knowing what we knew then or should have known then we could have done a better job on X, Y and Z. Well, look, I think all fair minded criticism has elements of truth to it. And, you know, look, people's perceptions are what matters. And I think the president feels, and as he stated coming in, he feels accountable. I mean, President Trump never said he would be willing to be accountable, and President Biden was accountable. President Biden, guidance to me in speaking to the country was, I don't care how you make me look, just give people the information they need. Desperately wanted to make sure that we help people protect themselves. And that made my job a lot easier. I think... What I've written in my book and what I believe to be true is that in a crisis, in a real crisis, you've got to pick the number one thing that matters the most and do the best you can on everything else. But you've got to decide what it is that is a must do or you'll diffuse your efforts because there's only so much resource and effort and energy. And as you said earlier, by far and away, the number one thing you could not mess up on was vaccinating the country as quickly as possible. Remember, we were racing against Alpha. Yeah. And we had to beat Alpha at the time. You know, we were producing hundreds of thousands of vaccines. We needed to be producing millions. We had zero inventory, even though the Trump administration had said they were leaving us with a big inventory. But remember, the whole idea of warp speed was that they were going to co produce while they were going for approval. And then only 46% of the vaccines that were getting sent out to states had made it into people's arms. So there was a giant black hole, John, and this is profound. One of the first things we learned is that more than half the vaccines being produced were disappearing into the ether. And ultimately, several of us were able to track down what was happening. But we needed Pfizer and Moderna to ramp their production every week by multiples of the prior week. And, And it had never been done before. And I think I still believe that the difference between having vaccinated that much of the country hundreds of millions of people and not, you know, we would be having very different conversations today if, if we had messed that up. Yes. So I'm not saying everything else was secondary, but I am in effect saying that <laughs> if we hadn't messed that up, everything else, none of the other shit would have mattered, John, Right. if we hadn't nailed that. Right. Now, are there things that, that as I look at it and say, boy, when we said masks aren't needed for people who are vaccinated, when the CDC said that, you know, should we at the White House have stopped them from saying that? 
And I think I will just give you a little bit of insight into what was going on. We were very sensitive and maybe oversteered to what President Trump was accused of, rightfully so, of playing politics. Right. Politicizing the science. Yeah. And yeah. so we were very much trying to say, hey, we're going to let the scientists speak and then we're going to run our policies based on what the science says. And so who are we at the White House to question the CDC when they reach a conclusion? And perhaps that was an oversteer. Perhaps there is a middle ground where we should have said, you know what? Wait, there's nothing that hurts for waiting. Or you know what? And I think we were worried about the story that would come out. White House suppresses CDC data. The, the, we're worried about the story. We're worried about the reality. Right. That we had so endangered our scientific strength and community. And it happened when, and the, the reverse, when they put a stop on Johnson & Johnson. Right. People were highly critical. How could you do it for only a handful of cases, et cetera? Right. We said, boy, we can't stop them from doing that. We know that that took a lot of momentum away from vaccination program. But we said we need people to be confident that the FDA is not being hampered. Right. And it turns out it was the right decision because they had to change the way people who were getting these reactions were treated. And even for a handful of people, we had to let the scientists do what they did, even though you could argue it hurt the overall program. These are difficult judgment calls. And I can imagine someone making the judgment call differently and saying, you know what? We're going to have to tell the scientists that they can't do what they want or say what they want right. at that point in time. And, you know, I just, to be honest, John, I'm not sure I know the right answer. I know at the time it felt like we had to let the scientists have their degree of independence. But I also know that it was part of confusing the public. Right. And they're part of the administration. Right. And... You know, we're not without account. Let's take another quick break and we'll be right back with more of my conversation with Andy Slavitt on Hell and High Water. And we're back with Andy Slavitt on Hell and High Water. You know, one of the things that happened in early January was suddenly there was this movement, even as Omicron was peaking and everybody was like freaking out about it. You had this group of very familiar now COVID scientists, many of whom had worked on the Biden transition, suddenly coming out in various places, in articles, published articles on television, other places, kind of making an argument for a shift in the paradigm of how we think about COVID. And I want to play Zeke Emanuel just because it kind of sums it up here. This is from January 10th. Here's Zeke Emanuel talking about the shift from well, what I think is from pandemic to endemic. And then we'll talk about that on the other side. We're not going to defeat the coronavirus. It's here to stay. It's going to be around and it's going to get to an endemic level. Our strategy has to change. And that was the main purpose of writing these articles. We're going to get out of this emergency sometime in the end of February, early March. We need a strategic plan for the rest of 2022. So that's Zeke Emanuel basically saying, you know, it's time for us to start living with this virus, which is a stark contrast from uh, what the Biden administration has been saying for a long time, which was, you know, we're going to defeat the virus. And right, Zeke isn't the only one. You got Michael Osterholm, a lot of other heavy hitters who've been affiliated with the administration who are saying the same thing. And, you know, the RNC is laser like in its focus on Biden's, you know, mantra about 
We're going to end the virus. We're going to defeat the virus. We're going to beat the virus into submission. And for what seems to be maybe, or at least it wants to portray as Republicans do, you know, an about face that suddenly we're maybe waving the white flag of surrender when Joe Biden said he would never do that. So let's take a listen to that Republican National Committee ad attacking Joe Biden for the consistency of his message over the past year. I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm not going to shut down the country, but I'm going to shut down the virus. I'm going to shut down the virus. I'm going to shut down the virus. I will take care of this. I will end this. I will make sure we have a plan. I'm going to shut down the virus. I'll shut down the virus. I'm going to shut down the virus. What I would say is I'm going to shut down the virus. I'm going to shut down the virus. Look, there is no federal solution. This gets solved at a state level. So, Andy, putting aside the politics for a moment, you know, do you accept the notion that Zeke and Osterholm and others are propounding that we are kind of right now about to shift from the pandemic phase to the endemic phase of COVID? And if so, what does that mean? Yes, but not yet. I don't think we're there yet. I don't know that we're there yet. So Zeke is right. And I talked to Zeke and all, and all, all of them. They're right that that's eventually where we need to be. But we're not even at that stage yet. We're still in the middle of a wave. We could see more variants. And to some extent, Omicron has changed things to the point where endemic is a place of victory. You know, particularly if it turns out that we are going to see mild strains, and and we don't know that for sure, but if we're going to continue to only see mild strains, then that's where we're going to be. I think the jury is, I mean, you can imagine Biden declaring, hey, we're at the endemic stage. And six months later, regretting saying that because we're still dealing with this kind of Omicron wave going around the globe. So, look, it's the job of people like Zeke and others to be planful, to talk about what might come next and to provoke and push kind of for the future. And I thought those were pretty appropriate statements with some good ideas. And then I took a look at them. I didn't think it was the right time personally to be pushing those things out, but I'm more than fine that they right. did. So you, so you like when I see, you know, I, I look at a lot of newsletters and stuff and I see things and you see economists and other people who put stuff out. You know, there's a guy who put out at the on medium who's written some interesting stuff and gets circulated in some interesting places. Guy Thomas Pueo, who says the headline of this is coronavirus game over. It's time to start living again. And between Omicron vaccines and treatments, the risk of COVID is down by 10x to 1,000x. The Omicron wave is likely to be the last we should be cautious around. As a result, we should officially end the pandemic soon, probably in a month or so, unless some new, pretty unlikely new information appears. That strikes you as just way too optimistic, like or premature. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think it's just premature, but but not all of it. Not all of it's premature. I think the part about there won't be likely to be other variants That's the part that's premature. I do think we're at a place, John, where we should have enough information that our individual risk decisions should prevail. And if you feel, given your age, your health, the health and age of the people around you, and the general prevalence, that you you should be engaging in more activities and you can go to weddings and take risks, whether they feel like they're big or small to you, then as long as you're not endangering others, then I've got no problem with that. I do think we still have, you know, kids under five who aren't able to get vaccinated. And I still think we have millions of people who are immunocompromised and vaccines don't work well for. And the antivirals are the solution for them, or at least one major solution for them. As those things are out there, you know, I think we will be able to say, look, give me something that you want to do in your life. Go to a sports event, 
see a family member. There's a safe way to do it. Yeah. And as a society, we should be able to start to do those things. What I'm not ready to say is, hey, let's all go get Omicron. Let's go have an Omicron party. Yeah. Or let's say that teachers in schools shouldn't have to worry about you know getting infected. Look, I hate the flu. So you're talking to the wrong person. Like if you told right. me I'm going to be out for five days with a terrible flu, yeah. like I'm a whiny baby. Yeah, yeah. I'm asking my wife for soup yeah. and yeah, yeah. laying in bed and yeah. groaning. So even if you told me I'm not going to the hospital, I don't find it particularly pleasant. And I find people who go to school and work and have the flu and spread it knowingly to be bad people. Right. But the difference here, the very simple difference here is people are able to spread this without knowing they're sick. So it makes it tricky. Yeah. If you knew you were sick, yeah. 99 out of 100 people wouldn't go and knowingly spread it. We've got a different situation here. It makes it tricky. It will be tricky for the long run. But, you know, if all you're talking about is making me a little whiny and making me sick, the stakes are considerably lower than they were a couple years ago. How much do you worry about, like, kind of the pessimistic case, which says something like, Omicron, we got really lucky and there are going to be new variants. The world is not nearly vaccinated enough, and we're not nowhere on that task, but we're not mm -hmm. anywhere near where we need to be. And who knows that viruses don't naturally evolve towards less infectiousness or less lethality. There is some chance that we're going to get hit with the, the next variant could be the thing we all feared, which is some other Greek letter, which is the one that's just as transmissible as Omicron, and it kills us all. How much do you worry about that scenario? <laughs> I'm not worried about it killing us all. Well, I for, I overstate for effect. No, no, you don't, but you don't overstate. I think it's three times as lethal as Delta and as transmissible as Omicron. Let's put it that way. That'd be pretty bad. There are people who worry about yeah. that. And, and I don't think that's a real worry. I mean, look, there was a while where the Soviet Union had a biological weapon program where they were building something that was about as contagious as the measles and about as lethal as Ebola. Now, imagine, imagine that being unleashed. That doesn't sound like fun to me. Don't tell Ron Klain about that. He might like have a heart attack thinking about that. I could, like kill him in his chair. Ron knows all about I it. I know. I'm kidding. Let's not remind him. Let's put it that yeah. way. We need, to keep, <laughs> we need to keep his blood pressure down to help him you yes. know, steer the country. There you go. Well, look, I think the thing that you learn, and it's not very comforting, but it's good to know, is that these mutations are random. And the fact that they multiply trillions of times and it, that it morphs very frequently means that there's lots of chances for mutations. And we have now introduced a new word, like we need a new word. Uh, we have different lineages now of variants. We have variants that could come from a Delta lineage. We have variants that could come from an Omicron lineage. We have variants that could come from an original lineage. And the reason we have them is because there are still people in the country, and animals, by the way, that have this virus multiplying inside of them. Right. And it's still multiplying inside of them because they're immunocompromised and their immune system's working just enough to keep them alive and battle this thing, but not well enough to defeat this thing. And so it, all those multiplication efforts existing in different lineages means that the next one could look very different. Right. The number of possibilities is just higher. Now, that's not particularly comforting, but I will say that within a matter of months, we could have a response for virtually anything that comes at us, including vaccines that work better and differently, including antivirals. And so even if we have to chase this thing around a little bit, and we may spend the next couple of years playing a little bit of whack-a-mole, we have the tools to stay ahead of it. And there may be periods of time, we were in periods like the one we're in now with Omicron, there may be periods of time when we got two months or three months here where we're dealing with a wave. That's very possible. But 
that to me the downside scenario are waves like this maybe things a little bit worse but the science never gets very far behind and eventually i think stays up it's a wily variant i mean hearing opinion pieces from people who aren't expert at yes. this it would be like me writing yeah, my yeah, opinion sure. piece like it's time for us to go out you know well fine it's time for us to go out but the reality is that we don't really know and we shouldn't be biased either right. way we shouldn't be biased because we've been burned twice and we shouldn't be biased because we're tired of it. We're just going to have to take what comes. So you have a son, I believe, who has long COVID or had long COVID. I don't know if that's still a thing that that's that still with your son. The effects of it, I mean. Yeah, he's about 15, 16 months out from his when he had COVID. How old is he? He's 20. 20 okay. He's 20. And, and he's got the brain development to prove it. <laughs> um, meaning he got it by hanging out with people at college. Right. I kid, he's very smart. Um, <laughs> I got that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I want to make sure everyone in your audience, if someone knows Zach, I don't want anybody. Hey, but if COVID had happened when I was 20 years old and I was like a junior in college, I have no doubt that I would have been like, fuck it and like not been doing the right things. I have no doubts. Yeah. I have no, I have no, sure. I have no faith in the notion that I would have been totally rational and reasonable at that time. And I know a lot of smart kids who were like, I don't really care. I'm just going to live my life. They're behaving rationally. And it's not that they don't care. I mean, no. it's not, it's two years into this and, you know, he was careful around me my wife and I, you know, he, it's not that he doesn't care, of course. but when he's at school with his friends, all of whom have had COVID a hundred percent. Yes. Right. He's like, everyone's told him these are the best years of your right. life. Sure. So it's like, he's gonna, he's not going to miss the party, but, sure. but, but he does still have some lingering effects. They're intermittent and they're, they're not serious right. and they're not getting him down. And I, hopefully they're less frequent, but they're just, you know, John, they're just like weird enough to not always be sure, like, is it connected or not? Like he'll right. get, he'll get very cold hands, which yeah. we know is a sign, yeah. like very cold, like scary cold hands. Yeah. He'll get, he'll get a rash. He'll get a really painful rash and then it'll go away. Right. He'll get all kinds of weird things that are just popping up, but the kind of the more serious things, the rapid heart rates, the shortness of breath, those things seem to be better although i will say he doesn't do as much cardio he's a very fit right. kid but he he takes it easier on the cardio than he used well, the to. reason i asked the question is because if i think that for a lot of parents you know the, the existence of long covid is part of what drives a lot of parents parents are always concerned about their kids and their health i want to i don't want to stipulate that and and every parent every parent i know is concerned about their kids and their health but long covid you know, it looms in a lot of people's minds. Like, I do not want my kid, even if COVID's not going to kill my child, I don't want my child to be saddled with the potentially lasting effects of the kind you just described for your son, which are not, you know, uh, at least so far have not been debilitating. Uh, but they're, as you said, they're weird and they're disturbing and they kind of, you know, not something you would wish on him or, or anybody else that you love and care about. So how do you, like at this moment, understanding what, again, going back to kind of understanding what Omicron is, and the data that we have about it, do you think that the fear that the likelihood of long COVID being a, as, as we know from, from what we know about this variant, as we move from pandemic to endemic, is that a risk that's going to kind of decrease, you think, over time? Again, my own, we can't predict the future, but do we think the trend lines are such that it's like, you know what, like in the same way that the overall pandemic becomes more livable with that the threat of long COVID for kids is also something that are going to become more livable with, manageable, tolerable. Well, look, Zach was, in fact, vaccinated back then because this was in 2020 before there were vaccines. And we do know that vaccines pretty significantly reduce right. 
long COVID likelihood. And that's a good thing. And we also know, by the way, that other viruses, SARS-CoV-1, for one, had long-term effects. And look, I have two friends, two friends who are both adults who had viruses when they were younger kids, and one of them lost their hearing in both ears, so they're just completely deaf, and the other lost her hearing in one ear. From And I'm not sure if they were the same virus or different viruses. I have another friend who had a virus um, while she was pregnant and had a severely disabled child. So this is not new with SARS-CoV-2. You know, viruses are wily things, and we don't know exactly how they behave, and they I think they stick... There's a bunch of different theories, including that they can hide out in your body in different places and so forth. And this virus loves our neuropathways. So it can go places and hide. But Omicron, I think we believe, because it multiplies fewer times, there's reason to believe that it's less likely. But it still has access to your neuropathways, even if it's not in your Mm -hmm. lungs. So I don't think anybody's ready to declare that that risk has gone down from the different variants. People are ready to declare that the risk has gone down because of uh, vaccines. And look, you can't live your life for every long-term potential event and side effect. I do think people should be careful about this with their kids because you don't want your children to have something that's long-lasting. And when Zach asks, you know, dad, am I going to be okay? Your go-to move is to be able to reassure your kid. And when you can't, it's a bit concerning. So I would say that that adds to me if you're at a preponderance of trying to consider, should I have my kid vaccinated? That to me is the most definitive reason because it dramatically improves your odds. I want to ask you a last couple of questions before we let you go, just that we're kind of in the political realm. And I know that's not necessarily your bailiwick, but it's mine. And I want to come back to Donald Trump. And and partly because I mentioned before, right, one of the things that's happened, uh so many ironies in our world, is, you know, now the Republican talking point now is basically Joe Biden promised over and over and over again to end this pandemic and look at what's happened. There's more cases in, in 2021 than there were in 2020. And, you know, all of these misleading statistics and stuff that means bullshit. But that is the argument. You see it from the RNC. It's like they want to hit him over the head with his words that he would, you know, put paid to the pandemic. And then there's the other side of the coin, which I think is totally fascinating. Let's listen to Donald Trump here from the middle of this month. Here's Donald Trump taking pride in the fact that he's not only vaccinated, but boosted and making fun of Ron DeSantis without naming him. Ron DeSantis, one of many Republican politicians who is almost certainly boosted and vaccinated, but won't say so because of political reasons on the right. Let's listen to Trump here and then we'll talk about it. Well, I've taken it. I've had the booster. Many politicians, I watched a couple of politicians be interviewed. And one of the questions was, did you get the booster? Because they had the vaccine. And they, oh, they're answering it like, in other words, the answer is yes, but they don't want to say it. Because they're gutless. You've got to say it. Whether you had it or not, say it. But the fact is that I think the vaccine has saved tens of millions of people throughout the world. So I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm not a political strategist either, but I've covered some politics. And, you know, you can see what's coming here. You know, Donald Trump is basically standing up and saying, I created these vaccines. I should get the credit for it. Joe Biden has given him some credit, as have you. And he's now owning it in a way that puts him at odds with some people in his in his base and some people in the Republican Party. But he's basically now like, I left them the life saving vaccine. And Joe Biden said he was going to use the thing that I left him. And now COVID is still with us. He hasn't filled his promises. And, you know, not only was my reign not catastrophic on COVID, but 
I was the only reason anything good has happened on COVID. I was because I, I led the rapid pace development of this vaccine. And then Biden gets hammered for what Republicans will claim is overpromising. Again, I understand all of the bullshit in all of those arguments, but I'm curious how you react to see it unfolding. Are you surprised that Trump is taking this stance that he's like embracing the vaccines and saying he's got boosted? attacking Republican politicians to his right for not doing that to try to set up what I can see very clearly what this political argument is going to be if Trump runs for re-election and he ends up facing Joe Biden, which we both know is not an implausible scenario. Yeah, so I am surprised. I don't know if you were surprised. Oh, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, okay. yeah, I'm surprised. I, I, now it seems kind of weirdly obvious to me, but when he first started doing it, I was like, wait, what the fuck's happening here? It always would have been smart, though. It, was always, it always would have been a smart move on his part. But I think... You called it right. I think he saw an opportunity to take a shot at DeSantis. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at him, sometimes he takes shots from the right. Sometimes he takes shots from the left. But, you know, he gets his competitive juices right. I mean, to me, there's two things that motivate him. One is slamming down competition as quickly as he can. And second is playing to the crowd. And the question is, which urge was going to be greater? Because his play to the crowd urge, like, I don't think the guy's got a lot of original ideas. <laughs> I think he kind of I think he kind of tests messages and when they when he gets big applause he likes them and I think that was the basic conflict from from his standpoint is he was willing to subject himself even to some booze yeah. which I'm impressed with I have to say because that's normally not his speed as far as Biden goes look you're more expert at this than I am but it's not true in all cases that if you're a good manager that you'll get the best result politically. It's just not. Sometimes it's just not going to accrue to you because people are focused on something else or expectations are different. But in Biden's case, you know, the best thing he can do is be a good manager of this and let people witness him being a good manager. And he's capable of being highly communicative. He's got an an incredibly competent staff, far, far more competent than Trump did. And I say this with full respect for some of the people in the Trump team. They were hamstrung. Sure. I mean, even the good ones were hamstrung. And I think the timing could be such that he can get his hands around this thing and look, we live in the moment politically. Yes. So if the story in the fall is we had this horrible, tough surprise in Omicron, yeah. but look what we did. We got our hands around it and he continues to manage it well going forward. Then, you know, I think there's no question. And if I were him, I would, as I get to 2024, I begin to remind people of the lies and the denial and the and all of those other things that stuck to Trump. Because for every mistake or a thing that, that the Biden administration could do better. You've got Republican politicians who think that we should be talking about Tony Fauci's financial sure. statements, or we should be paying people not to get vaccinated like Ron DeSantis is doing. And the gulf between the Republicans are still managing this pandemic today, even post-Trump, and the way the Democrats are, is night and fucking day. I will day. conclude by saying that my favorite thing I've seen on television of late, there was a story, um, you may have seen it in the New York Post, that talked about COVID dick being a real thing. And <laughs> Stephen Colbert said the other night on stage, he said, yes, uh, COVID dick is a real thing, but he prefers to be called Ron DeSantis. And 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 with that, Andy, thank you for taking the time. Uh, it was great to have you here. And uh, you are a delight. Great to see you. Take care. Thanks. <laughs> Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Andy Slavitt for being with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel 
Castro Russell is our executive producer. 